Greetings, dear listeners. We recorded this episode with just Shadi and me, on video this time, something we're going to try to do more of in the coming weeks. You can check out the whole conversation over on YouTube if you want to see our pretty faces. It should be up soon. We started talking about the weird resilience of America. Both Shadi and I share a sense of American exceptionalism, but we are optimistic and pessimistic about different things. In the main episode, we argued about meritocracy, happiness, the relative importance of ideas, and whether the best democracy is a democracy that governs unsuccessfully. Later on, we turn to the question of whether our problem is Trump or Trumpism. If it's the latter, do intellectuals yelling about threats to democracy matter, especially if Trumpism is all about resentment? Put another way, would a greater awareness of the dangers of Hitler have prevented Hitler's rise? On to the show. understand what you were saying about america but i liked your conclusion <laughs> really you didn't I think, understand I think, what i'm saying because i didn't really understand the china firms thing like that was too economic and technical for me so i just skipped over it and just got to the end of your thread uh the the story is is that um like we're manufacturing in america again and uh i don't know what the statistic was like year on year factory openings uh in america like up by 116 percent um, 116 yeah and like okay. onshoring is happening and the the mm. the idea behind it was that um for all the talk about uh you know policy prescriptions and everything about you know we need to do this because we need to help america and patriotism and you know all the working class stuff of of people trying to explain Trump and all the sort of stuff where uh, Biden tried to ape Trump with his whole sort of policy, foreign policy for the middle class and whatever. None of that matters. Ultimately, the it was like price signals from COVID, uh, the disruption to the supply chain. Uh, arguably, Trump's sort of belligerence to China did it partly, but even that didn't do it. It was like it was basically events and and sort of economic circumstances now pushing America to actually be more resilient um, than pretty much anywhere else. I mean, I'm particularly just comparing it to Europe, where they're still just talking about what are they going to do about China? How are they going to do reshoring and French shoring and all this shit? Meanwhile, American industry year on year is like it's on the case, you know, and and not because of any policy being done, not because of what any intellectual said. It's just happening <laughs> because it has to happen. That's all. So that was the Didn't that was a the great philosopher, a great philosopher once said, I believe, or was it Winston Churchill? Events, dear boy, events. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Was that Churchill? <laughs> Did I, I just... Churchill? I don't think it was Churchill. I think it was either. a British person. It was a Brit. But so, <laughs> so you're basically saying then that I think what why this argument is appealing to you is because it's not about ideas. Um, right. and you've, and I, th I think it's fair to say Demir that you've long been of the opinion that ideas are overrated. Yeah. I mean, you know, I don't know. It's a hobby horse of mine, as you know, and I just come back to it. So when something makes me think of it, I just sort of go for it and, uh, you know, try and put it out there and see, see, see if there's any traction. Cause I think it's, it is a deeply offensive idea to, 
like lettered literate people like ourselves right that we actually don't matter that like all the stuff that, that we come up with and all these thoughts and stuff and plans and all the rest of it but actually in the grand scheme of thing it doesn't matter and it, it's i remember it was uh the the real sort of inspiration for this thread is uh walter russell mead's book god and gold where he just makes the case there's something about you know the kind of merchant cultures that are britain and the united states and you can say that's the role of ideas and culture it's ideas and it's all ideas but it is important that it's no individual's contribution to those ideas or not in any sort of direct way that we intellectuals like to think that you know we put the big idea out there and then it gets picked up and then it gets somehow acted on at best maybe i would i would like concede who was it was it a uh, uh Keynes who said that, that, you know, we're all slaves to some dead philosopher uh, from centuries ago. It's not my ideas concocted by some dead philosopher from like a century ago. Dead white man, to be dead white precise. Man, yeah, <laughs> and it, was, it was Keynes who said that. He was a big social justice warrior. <laughs> no, but uh, so, I don't know, whatever. Mm. You know, that's that's sort of, you know, that's where I'm coming from. So I'm just sort of throwing that out there on that, that tweet. But isn't there a risk here of confirmation bias that you search out things that confirm this hobby horse of yours. And so obviously you'll be excited that there is something that seems to support this. But what are you, a scientist? You do, you do like randomized <laughs> trials on your on your hobby horses and ideas and you're like, <laughs> how can I, how can I ensure? Yeah, I don't know if that's, if that's right, you know? But you've been saying this for a while. I, I think there was also a tweet that you had a few weeks back where you were, you were making the point that if we're talking about innovation, hmm. Europe is so behind and they're just basically using American tech and that's about it. And I think you keep on coming back to this theme that there is something about America in terms of the kind of creativity and innovation it can unleash. And it's just remarkable how behind schedule or even let's say backwards Europe is. And, you know, obviously liberals don't like to think about Europe and specifically Western Europe as being backwards, but in in any number of ways, they, they seem to be that. So I, I'm curious, like, because um, I think you say in, in this most recent thread, here's what you say, Demir says, not sure how else to put it, but never bet against America. I say it all the time to my European friends, especially when they are most horrified by my adopted home. I don't get it either. I'm some kind of awful intellectual after all, but here we are. Don't bet against America. Yeah, I think that's right. Look, I, I, I mean, look, this is, this is a, a longstanding thread that you and I have and actually we boost each other on when, when we get down about things. I mean, I felt you were a little down in your Monday note this week on America, uh, even though you come out on the on the side of, you know, America is in fact great despite the darkness. I felt like even there you were dwelling a bit too much on the darkness, but, you know. Interesting. Can you say more about that? No, I well, mean, it, Of course, we'll include a link in the, in the show notes. This came out on July 4th. Yeah. I probably would have written it regardless, but you know, it it, it was timed nicely with Independence Day. Um, so I guess I have been reflecting about America, yeah, but just not. But also because so much has gone on in recent weeks with 
Dobbs ruling, abortion, the Supreme Court. I mean, it, it is a time to be panicked about the future of America. So I think it is important to take a step back and take stock of where we're at. Like, how bad is America today? Right. And, uh, yeah. So tell me, why did you think I was a little bit too depressing there? Well, I don't know. You know, I mean, I, I guess it's because offline we've been having conversations and, you know, we'll probably have a bit of that conversation now um, about how, you know, maybe it's not all that bad, like the Dobbs ruling and the rest of this. I mean, I, I sort of took a stab at it the week before in the Monday note. Uh, again, going after one of my hobby horses, which is Americans' obsessions with rights and how that that makes makes things less tenable and less workable. Um, and you know, I mean, I, I I felt like you you. I mean, I, I take your point. You know, it's a it's a it's a serious moment right now, and there's a lot of thinking and reflection that needs to happen uh, about the moment that we face. But you know, there's there's also a lot of um, unnecessary panic, I think, at this moment about a lot of this stuff. Um, it's not to minimize that the changes aren't going to be profound and they're not going to be wrenching and, and perhaps painful. But, you know, I think I feel like over the last few weeks, maybe you've oscillated a bit. Like, you know, as when you sat down to write this essay, you were more pensive and gloomy. But in general, you know, I've, 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 I've heard you at least say uh, and have thoughts about how uh, rulings like this actually, you know, might be good basically on democratic first principles that, that, you know, um, that, it, it, you know, it's, it's a path perhaps for, 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 uh, you know, a, a healthier Republic. And that's not, that's not to whitewash the Supreme court, uh, completely. It's not to agree with, you know, originalism completely, but, you know, just perhaps in the narrow case of Dobbs that it, it might be healthy. Um, yeah, and, fair enough. So I, you know, in my piece, though, I didn't actually dwell on Dobbs or abortion. So the reason for my relative darkness was broader. And it's something that I've said quite a bit on this podcast and, and also personally in our conversations, which is, I don't think America is the most pleasant place to live mm -hmm. if you want to enjoy your life. So if the goal is happiness, um, and, I, you know, I make this contrast vis-a-vis uh, -vis Western Europe where, you know, you go to Italy or Spain or France, there's a certain kind of leisurely pace. There isn't the same meritocratic rat race. And people just sort of accept their lives and enjoy their long leisurely lunches and their naps during the day. I'm being slightly stereotypical here in regards to the Spanish. But I think there is something about a different a different, um, what's it called? Tempo, a different tempo of life. Yeah. And people aren't as ambitious. And I think whoever's spent time really anywhere in Europe can sense this. There isn't this same preoccupation with striving, with unbridled ambition all the time. People's work hours are different. They're not always thinking about the next article they're going to write or what their boss is emailing them. I mean, France has been a pioneer in so-called right to disconnect laws, where they actually put restrictions on, you know, how intense employers can be with their employees outside of work hours. And of course, there's paid family leave, so on and so forth. So it's also a policy question. But, um, 
and and I think, but that's also what makes America great and innovative and exciting and vibrant and messy and alive, because they're it just all it just it's all there. It's like a Jackson Pollock painting, mm. and that that can quite literally be messy, but the beauty is in the messiness. And I keep on coming back to this conclusion that the bad and the good of America are hard to disentangle. And I think we have to be careful of messing with, careful about messing with the formula, because if we did try to become more like Denmark, we would also, it might be better in certain ways, but we would also lose some of what makes America, America. And maybe that trade-off is worth it, but we have to be aware that there is a trade-off. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Right. And I, we'll have Nick Burns on, I think, either next week or the week after to talk about his essay, which, you know, you pivot off of and is is just really good, I think. Um, so maybe we should save some of that. Um, I, and I didn't yeah. read the Atlantic piece on meritocracy, which you you actually used to pivot off of uh, as well. Um, I think you, you mentioned that the, the piece itself sort of suffers at the end, uh, like with that last third problem with... Uh, with sort of like big ideas. Yeah, the problem of the last third, yeah. which is like the like very few books can really escape this, but it was very striking in this regard um, because, and all the, there's been a bunch of books against meritocracy in recent years. That's become like a thing that people have kind of zeroed in on. But like when it comes to the solutions, there aren't obvious solutions. But that's the problem with a lot of these debates. There aren't obvious solutions to most problems and not all problems have solutions in the first place. But I think the basic argument here from Daniel Markovitz is um, on meritocracy is meritocracy doesn't make us happier. Mer so meritocracy, it's not so much that it's bad for the poor or it's bad for the less skilled or the less smart or the less educated. It's also bad for the meritocrats themselves. The ones who benefit from the very system end up suffering from it. Right. But I, I mean, I guess that ties into my thread in some way. And I mean, it's what you're saying about, you know, what makes America this Jackson Pollock painting. But it's more than that. I think it, 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 it leads to America defining the world in a lot of ways. And sure, I mean, I guess it's making it a little bit more miserable. But you know what I mean? It's one of those... I don't know, complaints that actually seems grounded in I, not that much. You know, I mean, yeah, sure. I guess Europeans have better social safety nets. They have uh, also, um, I think, higher unemployment in general. They rebound much more slowly. They had a hell of a time after 2008, uh, whereas America comparatively, you know, rebounded. Um, may again have a hell of a time after this war, whereas I, I think, you know, unless war comes to America's shores, for geographic reasons, for like productivity reasons, for the rest of it, we'll just be better off. And I mean, I guess it gets down to maybe another sort of um, hobby horse of mine is is um, you don't believe in it, happiness. Well, the happiness studies stuff, right? I mean, there's a lot on it. I know you're you're <laughs> you're, you're reading more of that stuff and sort of you know, and and I I you know, and I know there are these sociological studies and surveys that that you know self-reported happiness and they try to account for different things. It just seems to me like a really fraught uh, category and one especially, you know, make it self-reported stuff. Don't you find it? It's, a, it's I don't know, just not that convincing. Yeah. yeah, I'm skeptical about it. But what can you do besides self-reported measures for happiness? I mean, at some level, all of this is subjective. So we do have to ask people how they feel. 
And how they feel is obviously socially constructed. In some countries, you're encouraged to be pessimistic when people ask you how you're doing, even though you might actually be enjoying your life. Right. There's like a social desirability thing. And if you live in Norway, it's almost like you think you should be happy because you know things are pretty awesome, at least in terms of a very generous welfare state. So even if you're depressed, you'll, and it's really cold there, obviously, some parts of the year, you'll still like tell people tell pollsters, oh yeah, like, and, and also I think in more, in, in these more traditionally homogenous societies, um, that are in some ways also more conformist that, um, you know, there's not as much weirdness that is being encouraged because, you know, smaller, more homogenous societies, high levels of trust, a sort of collectivist ethos, you kind of depend on the state, the state is more central in people's lives, you're you're sort of, you know, um, you're not going to diverge from the consensus too much. So there's all these different factors that lead people to respond in different ways to to questions around. So you know, you take it with a grain of salt. But what else can you really do? I would say um, uh, one one little interesting anecdote, and obviously anecdotes are not data. Well, there's no reason this would be. This is a very odd sentiment I heard when I was in California last year. And for our dear listeners who wondered where we were last week, we went a little bit longer between episodes. I was on a bit of a personal retreat in the um, in the remote, obscure coasts of Northern California. And I went, I went further up north than I have before. So I was at a conference in, in Napa Valley, um, Faith Angle Forum, which focuses on the role of religion in public life. And then I thought, well, you know, I'm in California. Let me take some time off and reflect and read. So I went a few hours north of San Francisco. I don't know if you've heard of Sea Ranch or Elk or nope. Point Arena, these sorts of places. How far but, from like, um, like the Oregon border, like nearby, that far north or, or just No, it's to not the Lost Coast because okay. I guess there's a part of the coastline that actually doesn't have a highway because it was too rugged. I didn't go all the way up north, but it okay. was still pretty rugged and chilly and not a lot of people, which I, you know, the misanthropic side of me loves. Anyway, on my way back, I was passing through San Fr I just want to clarify for our dear listeners, including friends who expect that if I'm in San Francisco, we should hang out. I take your point. I was only passing through for the night. I want to clarify that. And I had an event. But at this event, there was someone there. And I, I, I hadn't met him before. He said something which I thought was so hardcore pro-American. Mm. And I was like, damn. He said, I was sort of sharing my concerns about the meritocratic aspects of American life that maybe make us miserable. And I was pushing him on that. But he, you know, he said something like, America is the closest thing that we've ever had to a living paradise in human history. I and it was so... It was such a like it was such an unapologetic like he wasn't like qualifying like here I am being like yeah I love America America's great but 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 and he's like get out of here man he was being nice about it but it's, come on right this but, is but, this but is take awesome it this is but take it seriously though you know I mean when when and this is and I mean take it seriously in the sense that that like question the 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 sort of happiness surveys because what is happiness you know um, again. Yes, sure. We have no alternative except sort of self-measured stuff. Um, is is happiness 
I remember it was uh, it was uh, Tyler Cowen's book. Um, gosh, what was it called? The one the one he was sort of reasonably famous for about about uh, you know the coming technological displacement of all of us and stuff like that. And he had some really dystopian sort of passages. Oh, the, in there. the Great Replacement. Yeah, oh, no, I don't think it was the Great <laughs> Replacement. But... <laughs> Tyler Cowen's. I think it's the great. <laughs> I think it's the great something though. Yeah, Maybe yeah, the Great yeah. Divergence. Yeah, could be, Tyler, anyway, Tyler, whatever. Tyler Cowen's the Great Replacement theory, where machines <laughs> replace us and not immigrants, but. <laughs> Yeah, that would be um, good. Well, no, I mean, but but he, he he had some sort of these, and I think he got pilloried for that a lot because, you know, um, Tyler's a very rationalist thinker. I think he, he's, you know, very considers the stuff and is, he doesn't sort of shy away from this sort of stuff. But, you know, he, he, he talks about um, the fact that, that in fact, um, uh, you know, we, we may become so rich, in fact, that we might be able to uh, through technology, just basically give certain kinds of, of, of uh, living subsidies to people that don't actually contribute and aren't able to interface with machines so much and be given like a PlayStation and some sort of narcotics and, you know. Seriously? That's fascinating. I just didn't know that was his argument. And hamburgers and like, you know, live your <laughs> wait, life. You're just wait, are you being serious now? Hamburgers, narcotics, and so PlayStation? This book came out a really long time ago. And I read it while I was at the magazine uh, because, you know, you sort of have to like speed read some of these things to get through it. And I remember it was Bill Galston in the Wall Street Journal who really took him to task for this book um, and for this mm. for this sort of like mm. possible thing. I do remember that. Um, so I, I, I hope I'm not doing too much injustice to uh, Tyler's argument. I almost certainly am. But anyway, never mind the actual <laughs> content of Tyler's argument. And, and just to, to point out that that, you know, I think happiness doesn't mean comfort. And it doesn't mean uh, leisure and and the ability to basically do nothing. I mean, you know, that's that was the other really weird thing in, in um, like Marx's idea of what 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 happiness is. Right? Is like some level of material prosperity where you can like fish in the morning. I don't know, woodwork in the afternoon, and build a car in the evening, or whatever the hell he said. Right? And 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 it's it's just it doesn't correspond with human nature. Um, obviously, leisure is an important thing. But it's not the whole thing, and it's not happiness. Happiness is is creating something. And I think that's what America gets really well, is that it empowers people to make shit all the time and empowers them to just, like, go break shit and then make shit and just start again and do it again. And, yeah, that's demanding, but I, I you know, I it certainly leads to a more vibrant and better society, I think, a more dynamic society. I can argue that dynamic, maybe, but that a more dynamic society, not necessarily a better society, which is yeah. a very subjective sure, word. Subjective, what, subjective. Okay, what is well, better? So, so what is better? Uh, and, and I guess that, that's what gets at my sort of ideas don't matter argument and the, this whole sort of like passiveness of um, that without sort of intervention of ideas, uh, America's dynamism uh, leads it to be the most prosperous and most sort of world-defining power and has for the last, uh, you know, hundred odd years. Now, maybe that's not an end in and of itself. And maybe, you know, but that's certainly a hard metric that one can say that, yes. that despite adversity, it keeps bouncing back and uh, it creates and it, it, it makes stuff. It sets the tempo. It, 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 and by doing that, by being the, the, the pace setter, the trendsetter, um, it leads to not being beholden to anyone else, ultimately. 
partly again, it's it's the gift of geography, uh, you know, uh, neighbors that can't threaten it, a sense of security, uh, massive, yeah. you know, again, land endowments and the ability to do this sort of stuff. But it's it's um, there's there's I guess I would say there's there's something that one can latch onto there is to not be uh, bullied by anyone else. That's that's a, a a sense of success, a sense of I don't know. This is where like my my not really attaching or really needing feeling like I need to attach questions like is it good or not. Um, I would just say that it's something that it affords us, and so maybe that's how I would take your 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 interlocutors. Um, things seriously. I mean, it, it allows individuals uh, the ability to just make stuff all the time. And that collectively leads to a society that, yes. well, that then leads to a society that, that, that basically, you know, sets the pace for the world if doesn't run it, you know? And again, you know, it's a conversation we've had before. I, I at the, when all the chips are down, um, all the, the talk about China and all the rest of this, I, I, I think that will surprise them in the end. Uh, I don't know how, and I don't think any intellectual. Oh yeah, I exactly totally agree with you. Work. We'll run in the with, fight we'll, against China, there's no doubt in my mind who will come out victorious. Um, you know, and in that sense, we both come to the same conclusion, although perhaps for different reasons. I would probably emphasize more the moral, the ideological yeah. right. uh, aspect and the moral aspect yeah. that because we're a democracy, we are destined to eclipse a competing dictatorship. Um, but, but for me, it's interesting that it, I don't think it's the democratic nature that makes America a world beater. I guess that's what I'm getting at also, you know? Um, now, we couldn't be a world beater if we were authoritarian. So we, I, I get that that's not what you emphasize. Yeah, no, that's true. But the two go hand in hand, the innovative aspect and the sense of vibrancy and chaotic creation Loosely governed, that right? Is only that's yeah. the interesting thing. It's 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 not that we are governed by consent, uh, though it would be hard to loosely govern anything without some consensus mechanism. And to have this kind of looseness in the governance, I think uh, you need you need, I guess, some kind of ill-functioning democracy. <laughs> and I mean, maybe that's part of it too. You know what I mean? Like if if you had too good of a democracy, maybe it wouldn't work that well. Because if you had like an effective democracy that actually managed to to uh, govern more, maybe that wouldn't be good. I don't know. I'm just now spitballing yeah, here, here. Okay, now you're you're onto something. Because what do we mean when we say effectiveness? An effective yeah. government means a stronger state in some way, where a state is getting things done, or being efficient, or providing services more effectively. And that's what Western European states are known for. And that's why the state is more present in people's everyday lives. And that, but that would mean, that would mean less room for the chaotic creativity that we're talking about here. So I think there definitely is a link here that maybe be careful what you wish for. You don't, you want good government, but you don't want too good government. You, you want good enough government. And once you start getting into, you know, a very effective state like the Norwegian state or or the Danish state, that comes at a cost because, as we've, as I've, as I think we've both said in different ways at different times, life is about trade offs, but so is politics. And if you have too much of one good thing, you'll have less of another good thing. You cannot have your cake and eat it. So there's no way you're going to have 
a vibrant, crazy Silicon Valley where people are just like bonkers and do crazy shit, but also, and also create amazing shit in Norway. Like that's why there isn't, I mean, there is technology, there is technology obviously in Norway, but there isn't going to be a Silicon Valley in Norway. Right. I mean, you know, that, that tweet thread you were referring to earlier, I just remember that was actually based on uh, someone else's tweet that I was actually surprised. Not, I mean, doesn't actually surprise me on, on reflection. I just didn't expect it. It was uh, Gary Kasparov was saying about Europe just sort of being backwards on a lot of technology stuff, you know, that they don't invent is stuff. There's too much regulation. The EU, I mean, well, but, you I, know, I mean, you'll so, know more about this than I do. I don't want to speak out of turn here about the nature of European regulations and the role of the EU in all of this, but it's just like harder to get things done when you're, I mean, there's just a lot. There's a lot that constrains where I think what defines America is being free from constraint. Right, and right. Bruno, our friend Bruno Machais was, was saying this the other day in response to this point that I was making that, you know, Americans engage in what he calls, and this is originally from Susan Sontag uh, decades ago, in dream politic, where there's a kind of, um, there's a kind of unreality to the way we live and that unreality is actually good because it means we are not constrained by history and it means we are not constrained by reality. We can transcend our own reality where Europe, I think, also by virtue of historical events and two devastating world wars, has always felt very tied to reality. It cannot afford to be unconstrained by it. Yeah. But feel free to push back no, on that. No, no, no. It's right. I'm, all I was going to say, though, and I got some pushback on that tweet thread. I forget. This one guy in particular went after me on it. And it was, you know, points well taken saying that, um, you know, there are other limits to Europe's uh, ability. You know, even though it is a common market, it's not a common language. It's harder to sort of travel that, you know, they haven't uh, really put their their uh, their back into some of this like technology stuff. And so, you know, there's more fragmentation at least to that. You take that uh, on the one hand. The other thing that I think is worth pointing out is that Germany is an insanely successful society. They're, you know, perhaps about to have their lunch eaten to, uh, from them because, uh, you know, they, they're not adaptable enough. And that gets to that that inventiveness. Uh, but, you know, they, through a kind of uh, uh, ability to I think, cooperate, yeah, legislate to, to a large extent, they, they managed to follow orders very well. Um, and, uh, uh, but, you know, they, they are, uh, certainly were, uh, leaders in, in, in factory and machine technology, right? I mean, they, it's, it's, it's sort of a, a marvel. Um, but it, it's not clear to me whether they're going to make the leap into what's next. That's the, the other part, you know, whereas America was great in cars and then, you know, uh, they, for example, they couldn't have been an Elon Musk in Germany, even though they're such a car culture and have invented that. They just, you know. They were slow to oh, that, yeah. and it just, it's just—it's like impossible to imagine, right? Um, so yeah, you know, I mean, with those caveats, it's interesting to hear you though talk about this because I think you and I, when we talk about these things about democracy, um, I tend to push you on on the moral element, which I, I've I've noticed over like the last year or so. You've been you've been also I think leaning into more, and I think it's it's right that you are about uh, democracy you know, shouldn't necessarily have good outcomes for it to be desirable and that it has a sort of intrinsic moral worth in and of itself. But I think we just hit on something different that I haven't actually heard you say that maybe a virtue of a democracy 
is that it in fact doesn't work all that well, which is a slightly different thing than I've heard you say before. That is to say that <laughs> that, that in fact, by it, it not working that well, it, it it creates space for the individual. It creates kind of freedom. I mean, it's that's a that's a, a weird like democratic minimalist liberal uh, liberal libertarian sort of argument, maybe you know that that that. Uh, but it is very intrinsic to America. Like you know, one of the these these things is that you know constitutionally the whole constitution is set up to be somewhat dysfunctional to have blockages at all sorts of levels to actually give room to uh individuals to creativity to actually make it work because it's so big and rambunctious and hard to sort of keep in one place you know it's one thing that drives me sort of insane among about uh liberals when they talk about especially in light of 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 uh well, any number of crises that we've been under lately, right? Uh, these these ideas that um, well, the Constitution is unjust. It you know it like favors the other side. And we can debate about that, but uh, you know what we need to do is like refound the country and like come up with some sort of new constitutional arrangement. Not recognizing that if you actually were to call together a constitutional convention right now, you couldn't refound the country. I don't think you could. All the no. all the challenges that were there at the start, all of all the stuff that's built into the Constitution that that leads to the kind of gridlock is there because we still have the same sort of arrangement we did uh, at the founding. Small states, uh, less populous states, uh, poorer states versus richer, larger, more industrialized, more prosperous states. Uh, they they all have interests. I mean, you could abolish states. I mean, we talked to our friend Nils Gilman like two years ago about that idea, just abolish all states and refound the government that way. But even when you think about that, is that's that would perhaps lead to a, a different kind of democracy than we have, but it would maybe lead to a a more totalizing and more effective yeah. democracy, which would be bad. And that's why I don't want to mess with a winning formula. For all of our faults, America works pretty good relative to human history. And for people who come up with these neo-utopian schemes of refounding America, look, maybe it would lead to some pretty interesting, even quote unquote, good outcomes, certainly maybe more economic equality or something like that. But I mean, do you want to mess with the formula? Because then America won't be America anymore. It would be something else. And I think that, I don't know if that makes me or us small C conservatives. I think as I've gotten older, I have become more reticent about the idea of just too much social or political, institutional, electoral engineering. Actually, I'm fine with electoral engineering because that's a little bit more narrow and specific. And I feel like there's a lot of good academic literature on better, sister, better systems of, of government that I know we disagree on that. I mean, I, I, fantas I think that I can be open to persuasion on like a, a more of a parliamentary system in the US. But even that would be risky because again, you're messing with a formula that, that's done us well for for um, for a long time now. I think your point on, I think we, I, I like this idea about dysfunction being a virtue because I think that's actually getting to something much deeper. I mean, if you think about the most interesting people you know as individuals, and this also goes for just like artists or writers or the people that we admire the most, or at least the people I admire the most, oftentimes they are very complex characters. They are not, 
they are not straightforward, like nine to five family men who are totally predictable. They're a little bit messy. And maybe that's where great writing and great art and great films come from. You, you need some level of dysfunction in an individual to be truly visionary and innovative on that scale. Maybe that's not the most important thing in the world. Maybe it's better to have someone who's solid and reliable. But again, we go to the trade-off. And if we can sort of make that same argument on the level of states and systems and democracies, that you actually do want some dysfunction baked into your system, because what goes for individuals goes for systems. Yeah. And for, I mean, I think there's something really important there that is, I think, hard for people to admit because they want things to work all the time. We want to solve problems and, you know, oh, if we can only have better policy and let's find a better policy through expertise. And that's why I think we've had a long running theme on the podcast that we are skeptical of too much expertise and too much experts because experts want to undo dysfunction. They see dysfunction as something to, to be addressed through technocratic policymaking, right? No, so. totally. Right. So, so it's interesting then, what's your, what's your, what's your, um, what's your attitude towards ideas then? Uh, because I, yeah, I guess we've never really explored that then is, is, you know, on the one hand, the importance of ideas, on the other hand, uh, the problems with expertise. Um, now, you know, I mean, I was actually texting with, with, uh, with our friend, Sam Kimbrell about this earlier today. Um, right. It, it's, there's a danger when we talk about ideas, uh, that we say, well, it's all ideas and you can't have anything, you know, without ideas, like life is ideas. Life is people interacting with each other and, you know, ideas happen, you know, events dear boy happen as I think Sam put it to me. And then like you reach for whatever is nearby and that's an idea and that lets you move forward. And that's the role of ideas. But there's something about what we don't like about expertise that we don't like about uh, technocracy that I think I'm also trying to get at in that, that tweet thread about why America is great is that, yeah, it, it works despite all that. Um, that, that, that the salvation is not in that. And so maybe I overstate my point by being against ideas, but I, I think, you know, I, I think you can at least be approach where I'm coming from on this in your dislike for experts. And again, you know, we had the, the, we had our conversation recently about expertise and, 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 um, obviously, you know, we're not, we're not Luddites, uh, vaccines work. We're both vaccinated, you know? Good shit. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but, but there's something there about, and I think it's probably cultural because we, we sort of, um, inhabit this milieu of, of, uh, you know, overeducated people, uh, working in this sort of space of ideas, um, that we, we maybe overestimate it's importance and overestimate our role in it. And that, that, that it's important to recognize that, that like, you know, um, if America makes it through everything, including, uh, you know, Trump and Trumpism and the rise of that sort of stuff, um, it will be like 
the sum of a bunch of things that make America America and not any single intervention of any individual or or like the role or like the transformative idea that somehow like gets us out of it. And I'd include in that things like liberalism that we've we've spent a lot of time talking about on, on this show. You know what I mean? Like, oh, is liberalism good? Is it bad? Like what's an anti-liberal, et cetera, et cetera. Ah, maybe, maybe, maybe none of that really matters, you know? Um, you know, here, here's, here's uh, maybe a, a pivot into something else. I saw there was a, a fight today. Uh, you were just sort of on Twitter. <laughs> you, were, you were in it a little bit. It had something to do with Jason Stanley and, and like Thomas Chatterton Williams and Wes Yang going after Thomas Chatterton Williams and Jason Stanley. I'm not, I'm not a big fan of Jason Stanley, as you know, largely on- and This is the Yale professor for people who are yeah, uninitiated. Sorry. Yeah, who wrote the book, um, what's it called? Uh, the Politics of Us and Them, something about fascism, yeah. which is, which I mean, I, I personally don't love his approach to fascism, to put it mildly, because I think he overuses the word and thinks a lot of people are fascists and that a well, lot of things are fascist, which is part of, yeah, anyway, but we're- well, that's, that's exactly what I wanted to get at, you know? Like, I, I think, so I've been, I, 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 he, he's really intense on Twitter and, you know, you and I guess- a couple other people in that thread know him personally and said he's a he's a decent guy and we shouldn't judge people by their behavior on Twitter and fair enough you know I don't know but more him, specifically we shouldn't judge people based on their worst moments on their worst moments and worst <laughs> ideas yeah that's what you said right um, yeah that there should be a kind of um, a generosity of spirit a benefit of the doubt that we should all model that in our lives that we see people who are struggling and you know I think he has been Jason Stanley has been open publicly that he's had some struggles personally. Mm -hmm. um, and that sometimes that's reflected in the way he engages on Twitter and he loses it. And I think that, you know, why not just be nicer about, like, why should we assume the worst about him? That's just to give people more context, because yeah. I think there's a really important insight there that that we can like dive into, but please, yeah. Well, no, but so I, I, I was sort of asking myself like why I, I've been sort of hostile to him and, you know, cause I think your point's sound, you know, like whatever, someone's a dick on Twitter. Maybe they're having all sorts of stuff. I, I don't follow him enough. I've muted him because I just mute people that irritate me now. Like, so I, I don't even know what he's up to. So I haven't even thought of him until this, uh, this fight erupted today and I somehow got tagged into it. Um, but the, the, uh, I, I was reflecting on what you said about that. And then I was, thinking to myself, what don't I really like about him? Yeah, he's sort of aggressive, but that doesn't really bother me. Aggression's fine. Um, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's, it's the vanity of it. I think it's the vanity of it. And, and, and part of that vanity is, let me just uh, dangerously oversimplify, but it, there's a kind of vanity that if only we had known uh, what was happening, um, at an early enough time, we could have stopped Hitler. I think that lar largely informs so much of our sort of public intellectual discourse. Trump, that's like, a nice sentences. pivot. I didn't see you going in that direction, but I like this. So it, yeah, it, okay. it's it sent like American intellectuals in this in this like neurotic space. Like I mean, American intellectuals, we've like as collectively we've been there for a long time. Quite frankly, you know. Um, appeasement and Munich and 1938 and all of that plays a huge role in sort of 2000s foreign policy debates. And, you know, it's always Munich and it's, we're always appeasing. We're always about to let 
let uh, really bad leaders in the world, you know, metastasize into Twitter. But then when when Trump happened, um, it turned a bunch of nominally smart people um, into really unbearably neurotic uh, and self-important, like, I don't know. Uh, they thought they were saving the republic. That's yeah, it. They that's took it, it upon that's themselves. It. The whole idea themselves. of the resistance even is absurd. That, that's it. Because that's what it. is the resistance referring to? It's referring to the resistance against fascism. That, that's in, it. In Germany and elsewhere. Yeah. And it's 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 um it's that I don't like. And and uh that 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 like why I, you know, rather than than you know, bearing some sort of grudge to Jason Stanley, I just mute him because I find it like just enervating and irritating to listen to. I've done that to so many people, quite frankly, and I just don't like see anymore. Uh, um, you know, and a lot of them are, were sort of never Trumpers and I'm not a Trumpist and I'm not even a never, never Trumper. You know, it's, I, I'm just not that committed, but like the, the kind of people that, that, um, that really saw themselves as, you know, uh, the final defense before incipient fascism takes over America that's a kind of vanity about ideas that I just don't have time for. And so maybe, I don't it's know, also, it's not even about, it's bit. not even an argument. Yeah. But it's not even an argument against the role of ideas as much as it's an argument against self-importance. I think what we both don't like is to think that you can stand athwart history and say, stop or no, or that you can take it upon yourself. Like by writing a book against fascism, you're not going to stop fascism. Well, first of all, if you're writing a book against fascism, then you don't live in a fascist society because you wouldn't be allowed to write it if there was anyway. But I think that's what bothers us that, you know, there's something endearing about people thinking that they are like on the front lines. And, you know, one of the things I appreciated about, but Christopher Hitchens was never so self-serious or self-important, but there was a kind of romance to Christopher Hitchens's writing yes. where he always was looking for the next grand struggle and he was the one who was going to lead the way. I think it, I think it led him to be an excellent writer because that led him to be contrarian. He, he would search for things that weren't there and he would go against the grain and sometimes that would lead him astray as in Iraq, for example. So I think there's like this tension with writers who write on this grand epic scale that they can like lose perspective and that can create all all number of problems and there has to be a certain kind of modesty about the role that we as individuals play like we as individuals are not going to change the world through our writing well mm -hmm. i mean i guess we think that we can we can we can play a part but it's not just us like we're part of broader intellectual communities and we try to move the needle at least somewhat and maybe you and I differ in that in that I actually do want to be I want to do I want to play a role in moving the needle at least a little bit on the issues that I care about like while I'm on this earth mm. but I don't like the idea of oh my god I'm I'm a member of the resistance and I'm going to write a book against fascism and also like not to go into January 6 right now but um I only bring it up because people attack me on this on a regular basis. But, you know, when people say, well, oh, knowing what we know now, what Trump did with the insurrection on January 6th, knowing what we know now, we should have done more to stop him three years ago or four years ago, so on and so forth. But part of the problem there is that we didn't know January 6th was going to happen. 
and this is, I, I, I would have to think this through a little bit more, but there's a certain kind of retroactive analysis where there are other, there are other counterfactual histories in which Trump wouldn't have been a part of this insurrection. Yeah. So to say that we should have known that there would have been an insurrection before there was an insurrection. I don't know if you can follow me on this. I, but- look, I, they're, they're going after you for that piece, which I still maintain you should never <laughs> apologize for. Um, but it's, 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 but it's, it's preposterous on its face. Like tr- they tried to remove Trump. Everyone tried to remove Trump. Didn't work. What are we worried about now? The Trump wins in What do you mean everyone say that just what do you mean everyone was trying just so you're cl- just to be clear what on I'm what you mean like, by that? I, what I'm saying is do they think that something was learned about January 6th that would have meaningfully shifted the balance uh in order to like have Trump impeached or removed from office? Um I I I I I, I don't think so. I don't think that if Trump was president right now and the January 6th stuff happened today, you'd have the votes to impeach him. So it just gets back to this question. I mean, what are we worried about Trump right now is that he may win in 2024. I happen to think he probably won't, but that's what everyone's worried about. So it's it's on its face a ridiculous thing to talk about. If if what could we have what could we have done? What could we have done three years ago if we're worried about him winning in two years? Like unless, of course, the idea is that, you know, he will be put into office by a corrupt Supreme Court that will just like will the emperor. Into no, but I think that is something. part of the concern. It's not so much that he'll he'll win fair and square. It's that he'll win through basically extra democratic means by state legislators like tipping the balance one way or the other. I mean, I think there's there's a, a legitimate concern about about fraud yeah. and about not having the results accurately reflecting the actual vote. But I guess like my bigger issue here is something along the lines of like pre-crime. You can't you can't assume that someone is a criminal before the crime is committed. And I think there's something to be said for that in this age of, oh, well, everyone who said that Trump was a fascist or that he was this existential threat to democracy, they turned out to be right. Well, okay, we can debate that. And maybe those people felt they were vindicated by January 6th, fine, but we didn't know. I mean, you can't treat someone like a fascist and people, well, thankfully this is probably going to be in the subscriber portion of the episode, so I won't get like raked over it. Because I think if I said this on Twitter, I think people would really, really attack me and, Mm. and misconstrue what I'm saying. But I don't think that you can treat someone like a fascist if they are not in fact a fascist, or you can't treat someone like a fascist before they become a fascist. So whatever you wanna say about what Trump ultimately became, you can only assess people on what they've done up until that point. And you can't preemptively block them from participation in the democratic process because you think they might become a fascist in four years, whatever the word fascist means in this particular context. Does that make sense? No, it makes sense, but let's game it out some more. So what happens after he hangs Pence? Like Pence is hung out by his own entrails off a flagpole in front of the the Capitol. What then? Um, It's a crime. Uh, He's killed a man. Uh, I don't know how that works with sort of incitement, uh, you know, statutes. 
Um, no, it wouldn't just be an incitement statute. Presumably, it would like I mean, well. Presumably, Trump is not doing the killing himself, but so it would it would fall under some kind of in, you know incitement? Yeah, no, I'm to I'm, violence. I'm, I'm just yeah, trying yeah. to I'm trying to even you know game out um, this sort of worst case scenario. Um, I look, I I, I uh, I've been paying attention to the January sixth stuff. I don't know, maybe I'm just cynical enough that um, even though I certainly wasn't some sort of far-seeing person uh, about that January 6th would happen, um, I am not surprised by anything that's come out now that it has happened. Now, this is maybe like a weird cognitive bias that, you know, we who professionally write for stuff constantly take events as they happen and then like, oh, yes, yes, of course, that's what it was. Um but like, I, I I guess I've been a little disoriented by the fact that so many people on Twitter have been having this sort of mass catharsis about this sort of stuff, being like, we didn't know. I mean, what didn't we know? That he threw some dishes, that he lunged for the wheel and wanted to be there inciting the mob? Does that tell us that much more about what was happening? And I guess that's what my question is, is, is um, was this a coup? Or was it like, I don't know, what's 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 like mob violence incited by a president to, I guess, I I, can, I still can't imagine what happens after Pence is hung by by his entry. Okay, so is that what you're saying? Okay, so you're what you're saying is that there wouldn't have been a block, blocking a transition to power. You're saying that even if there was more violence and specific politicians or Congress people were attacked and 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 hurt or assassinated, that there still wouldn't have been an effective block of a transition of power. So you're saying that even if something happened to Mike Pence, Biden still would there still would have been a transition to power and Biden would have still been president, regardless. Don't you, don't, don't you kind of think so? I mean, like, I guess, what, what would it have taken for Trump to actually do a coup? He would have had to have the okay, military yeah. on his side, right? So he kills Pence and then flanked by uh, basically, uh, I don't know. But again, Trump isn't killing Pence himself, just to be clear sure, about the sure, scenario. Sure, sure, That's sure. How, the, mob, yeah, yeah, okay. the mob kills Pence and and um, and uh, there's a, a, a skirmish at the Capitol and they're unable to certify the vote then. A uh, bunch of senators and, and congressmen flee separately to different places. Um, and there's a state of emergency is called at that point, presumably. Yeah. Presumably, they have connections to, uh, you know, people in the cabinet. It's not clear to me that that Trump has full control of his cabinet, that he has full loyalty of, like, the army or something like that. Because I'm trying to think, like, what would a coup actually look like? What would ending democracy on January 6th actually have looked like? At best, you would have had this kind of a successful act of violence that, that kills a few politicians. I'm not minimizing that. And I, again, I'm not saying that I predicted that this was a possibility. It's not a coup, like yeah. That. But it's not a coup. And so, uh, but it would have prevented the certification. I think the argument is that once you target Pence and you intimidate through violence people who are voting on certification, that you don't actually have. I mean, I'm sure it would have happened still in some way subsequently, but right. I think that the certification process is what is being brought up for consideration here. But I mean, I think your your basic point, and again, I would be careful about how I would say this publicly in light of the public mood, but um, I personally never use the word coup, attempted yeah. or otherwise. 
when I talk about January 6th, I think I just think in terms of what, and not to be pedantic about it, but what the academic literature tells us about what coups actually are, I don't think this meets the definitional, definitional threshold. And, and ultimately, most coups do require, like when push comes to shove, the military is going to be relevant. And I don't see really any plausible scenario in which the military sides with Trump and actually uses violence against American citizens, unless you can imagine that scenario. I mean, I don't think that was really ever in the cards as far as I can tell. Right. I mean, and again, it gets back to the whole question of governability of this place. You know what I mean? Um, and and um, I, it, like our, state, to- our, our state is too diffuse. Like, like the America is maybe the argument that you're getting at is America is too, like you could probably do a coup somewhat more easily in France if you had, because sure. it's just a more unitary state, right? right? Right. Where there's too many moving parts in our institutional system. It would just, it's too messy that you, you'd have to bring a certain level of unity and, um, and coherence to what is not coherent in order to successfully stage a coup. I, and it's I, just hard for me to imagine how that works. And I should, I mean, I should like, I, I suppose for the record state that I, 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 I don't mean to minimize <laughs> that, that like what happened was, was like in any way, no big deal. It was a huge deal. And as you know, I continue to, to, uh, really bemoan the fact that that mob was not put down. And this is now your question about using violence against American citizens. I mean, I, I'm, 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 I fall on the law and order side of that thing like that. That should not have been yeah, allowed to we happen. Def- we did different. Like we, yeah, sh- we differ on that for sure. But, but again, so, you know, I, I don't, I don't have a lot of, um, uh, patience or sympathy for the protesters outside of, uh, January 6th. I, I think it's, it's absolutely awful that lapses of security like that were allowed to happen. Um, that in fact, there was even a question that, uh, you know, Mike Pence and, and our legislature was in any mortal danger at, at any point because of a, a rampaging mob outside. I think that's, that's absolutely awful uh, that Trump uh, participated in fomenting this is deplorable. And, I, you know, I, he's he is he's never been someone who, uh, you know, uh, I would vote for. And I, certainly this this like, uh, you know, fortifies that that impulse that he's not really fit to be president. But again, you know, it's it's. Um, I don't know. I, 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 it, it just gets at this whole thing about, about, um, the role of individuals in, in averting this sort of stuff. You know, I, if, if Trump is electable again, um, we've got a bigger problem than Trump, you know, that's, we, we have a, a, a real breakdown in, in sort of consensus about what, what governance is and things like that. Um, and so I, I'm, I'm a little befuddled, I guess, by the insistence and the focus on, um, I'm showing that Trump himself is the source of all of this because he nearly won legitimately uh, against Biden. It was a very close election. Um, and it was, you know, but for a small handful of voters across several states that he didn't win. And so I, I you know what I mean? Like, I, I'm, I'm still sort of baffled by, by all of this. And I think it's tied to this kind of like heroic individual ideas person fighting, fighting the tide. Wait, what are you baffled um, by? Republic. Like, tell me, wait, maybe I'm, Say more about what what's what you're befuddled by specifically. Well, I mean, I'm befuddled by the focus of the January sixth uh, investigations again to 
prove Trump as some sort of like inherent locus of badness in all of this when yeah, well, um, first of all, didn't we already know that? So, okay, I, I, I didn't know, follow precisely. the January. Exa- yeah, yeah. Well, we did know that. And I mean, this is what I was saying earlier. Like, I, I don't want to pretend like I called January 6th that it was going to happen. And, and you know, people are going after you because your essay seems to have minimized the, the you know, the, the likelihood of, of, of January 6th happening. Even though, again, like I said, I don't think you need to apologize for that at all. Um, I, 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 uh, I really think that this idea that, that you know, phenomena like trump can be stopped and like that like they're singular phenomena rather than like broader you know uh emanations of 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 larger problems um i don't know i feel like we're missing the forest for the trees even even now with the january 6th uh, uh stuff i think we're 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 missing about what's important about how trump came to be um what trumpism meant what trumpism will mean going forward None of that's resolved by um, by figuring out whether he did or did not want to be personally present, leading the mob onto the Capitol in an attempt to assassinate Mike Pence. You know. Yeah. Well, we're never going to address. I think what you're getting at is the sources and origins of Trump's like the phenomenon. Like why why was there this Trumpist movement in the first place? There we're never going to have a reckoning. Of a reckoning on that simply because it would implicate too many of our elites that you know they um they played a role in in fueling the rise of trump i don't mean fueling in the sense of like putting him on the media although that's that's like a small part of it but that trump spoke to you know a certain there, there's a there was a vacuum and trump mm-hmm. filled it and there was a sense of elite failure and elites did in fact fail and um, I don't, I don't know if you, I guess you did see this cause we talked about <clears throat> briefly the other day, but I simply made, um, I think what was a rather banal and we can mm. include this in the show notes for people who want to, um, revisit this wonderful Twitter debate episode, but I, 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 um, relive it in fact, relive the, the beauty of this experience, but I just put out what I thought was, a pretty banal, innocuous tweet. And I, I can assure you that I was not trying to start a debate because I was in California and I just, <laughs> my thing was, I no, no, look, I, I basically what I, I was working for the first two hours, then I just took a break. And normally I don't, I don't do provocative tweets if I know I'm going to be offline because you always want to have the option to either respond or delete. Like you, you don't want to like, whoa, my God, it's the whole thing that that happened to Justine Sacco when she went on this plane before they had Wi-Fi, right? And it was this very long plane ride to South Africa, and then she had tweeted something innocuous. She had like f- five followers, but it went viral. And then by the time she gets off the plane, she's fired from her job, and she's like one of the one of the the scalps in the in the in the first days of cancel culture or whatever and it ruined her life basically but so you know you i always have this fear of like oh do you never want to tweet something and then disappear you yeah. better be aware you got to yeah. know if something's blowing up right you got to put out so that I'm, fire I'm off of Twitter yeah. For maybe yeah exactly and i'm off of twitter for like six seven hours i come back and all these blue checks are like attacking me and quote tweeting me. And this is the way it always happens. One blue check sees something and then they they kind of hype it up and they they try to be like morally superior. Oh my God, how can Shadi tweet this? And then other people get a signal that it's t- 
that it's time for them to pile on too. It's like a fascinating thing to watch, but all it takes is one, one person to kind of like put it out there and encourage other. Anyway, I just said something like uh, a descriptive comment about how Obama, Obama may have played some role in the rise of Trump because he, he, he humiliated Trump in the white house correspondence dinner. And and there there does seem to be some anecdotal evidence that this really pissed off Trump and Trump really like was brooding in more and more resentment and he wanted to like, you know, just like, sh- whatever. I, I wasn't arguing that, that was the sole cause or the main cause, but I was saying, look, with a lot of these reactionaries, there's a story of resentment. The resentment builds over time and there are events that stoke the resentment. It doesn't justify Trump. It's a way of contextualizing how these people come to be. Yeah. And what I was what I was saying is that, and this is always a problem. And I remember after I remember it after 9-11, understanding why something bad happens isn't the same as justifying it. So we would do the same with like terrorists, yeah. with bin Laden or ISIS. We would say, okay, look, ISIS is evil, but here are inflection points along the way that contributed to the rise of ISIS, or this is something in bin Laden's life that pushed him more in this direction. That doesn't, I mean, so it's just a standard thing that we all do. And then everyone is like, oh my God, this is abuse. I don't even, I can't even understand what the logic is. Like I'm falling into the the logic of the abuser Mm. that I'm- I'm, Jesus, I didn't know they did that to you. Yeah, yeah, like saying that, but I don't even, I'm trying to understand what the argument is. You're blaming the victim. The argument is that- um, We're all victims of Trump's violence and you're blaming us? That sort of thing? Something something like that? Yeah. It's, it's, I, it's, it's something foreign to my way of looking at the world. So I'm not going to like try to like, you know, re-describe that, whatever. But anyway, the point is- I don't know where I'm going with this. Wait, I no, you were saying you were saying that uh, uh, what should we call it? Um, but about, just yeah, go on. Yeah, you know, I run. think I think basically the bigger point that I'm making is that we have to understand why bad things happen. Right. It doesn't mean that works. We're, we're not absolving Trump of the responsibility for his own badness or Tucker Carlson. And I was making a similar point that the John Stewart incident in 2004, whenever it was, when John Stewart humiliated Tucker Carlson on national television and Tucker Carlson disappeared for a while, um, you know, I think there's an argument to be made that there was a certain like grievance structure that that fed into that, Tuck, that you know, whatever. People get humiliated, it has an effect on them. That doesn't absolve Tucker Carlson of his bad ideas. It doesn't absolve Donald Trump for being Donald Trump. Ultimately, people have agency and moral responsibility for whatever they do. But it's a way to simply understand. And it's a way to give context to someone's evolution and how grievances create a certain narrative in an individual's mind. It doesn't mean that Anyway, I think you know what I'm talking about. Hopefully, a listener will also understand. The only only thing I'd add, though, is, again, I mean, to what we're talking about, about January 6th and focus on Trump and the unique badness of Trump, I I think Trump is a unique phenomenon. I don't want to take that away from the man. Like, I, you know, he managed to basically destroy the Republican Party, storm 
out of nowhere, uh, you know, capture the public imagination and and uh, rampage through the institutions for four years. Um, but again, you know, it's it's um, he's appealing to something. That's just like the a, exactly. a basic a basic sort of thing. And those resentments uh, that you know the personal slight he might have felt allows him then to channel a more broader resentment that we have in our society against the kinds of people that may look down on someone like Trump, basically. And it's just, it sort of works itself up into a, a nice cocktail. Yeah. And we have this kind of resentment color, shit going you know, on, but I mean, just, you know, just to maybe like put a bow on it, this is the kind of stuff that in this, all this COVID shit has been happening, right? Um, the kind of uh, stuff that's driven COVID into a culture war issue. Uh, the kind of uh, divide about deferring to authority versus not deferring to authority and how that's now become like a, you know, like a badge of, of pride among certain parts of this country that they, you know, that they think Fauci invented the virus or whatever the fuck. I don't, I'm not following yeah. closely where they are on, on this sort of stuff now. But, but that's worth understanding on its own terms and not, not, I think, uh, looking for easy, again, ideas-based solutions. I, I don't know how else to put it. Maybe this is just my hobby horses. Like it, it's, I'm not expressing it right, but it's, it's bigger and it's more sociological, all of it. And it's not, you know, uh, indoctrination. It's not disinformation. It's not like not access to the truth. None of that gets at what's happening. Um, because what's happening is bigger than any one set of ideas. It's, it's politics, it's resentment and some sort of cleavages in society. And all of the stuff that we dislike from Tucker Carlson to Donald Trump is part of this bigger thing somehow. Like, and, you know, again, Trump is a unique phenomenon and no one will be able to replicate what he did, I think, on the scale that he did. He's a unique talent. And your point stands that, you know, aggrieving a unique talent like that uh, to go create maximum mischief is uh, is worth noting. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. That's my 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 sort of feeling about that is uh, it's 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 sort of tied to to that. Like it's bigger than ideas. It's bigger than individuals. It's it's something else. And it's also just about accidents of, of history. So one, and this goes back to the logic of the abuser. I think I'm, I think I'm getting it back now. So basically one might make a comparison to say at Kotob that Kotob in, um, he went to Greeley, Colorado and he went to a church basement and saw a square dance. Yeah. Now that radicalized him and that's not a joke. That's actually real. And he talks about this in his recollections of the moment. And I think this is where people think that I'm saying, oh, are you blaming a church square dance for Sayyid Qutb's radicalization? Right. No, I'm observing that he reacted in a certain way to something. Yeah. Similarly, another moment that seems to loom large in his evolution is, I think we've probably talked about this before, but when a woman knocks on his door on the on the ship as he's, he's, he's um, taking the ship from Egypt to the US, um, and a woman knocks on his door late at night and she is apparently propositioning him. And this, this becomes such a, such a dishonorable moment for him. And again, it's part of this mythology that he, you know, and he lingers on this moment. Am, am I blaming the woman for knocking on his door at like 1 a.m.? No, it's not her fault. 
we're not blaming the victim, but we are trying to understand the mindset of a reactionary. Yeah, yeah. We're trying to understand a particular resentment and humiliation are very important drivers of human behavior. And progressives don't like to look at those dark, those dark aspects of the human experience. But I mean, you'll, anyone who like lives in the real world will know that resentment is everywhere. Yep. Even think about like, you know, in your own personal relationships with people, like how resentment plays into it. Um, and these are just things that we have to be aware of. And if we don't pay attention to them, we're losing an important part of the story, which is to say that if we take resentment and humiliation seriously, then what's one of the major lessons? And this is ultimately the point I was trying to make, which is don't humiliate your opponents after you've defeated them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because when people are, when people are in a state of defeat and humiliation, that is not a good time to what is it what's the expression to um screw the to circle to to um do something to the screw what, what is that called turn like, the screw to, <laughs> i thought yes. you were going with like you that's not a good time to screw the pooch or something like that and i don't know <laughs> i'm not sure exactly what that means in that context and you know we'll leave it up to to listeners imaginations but you know to yeah you're ready the nail is already in. Yeah. You don't have to, I'd uh, like to take the metaphor too, too literally, but you know, the screw is there. You don't have to keep on turning the screw. <laughs> Stop screwing the guy. You won. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think if I knew that about uh, the woman coming to him on the ship, he wasn't an attractive mm. man. Was he? Was he charming? Uh, because that's the other thing. Like, I, I'm not sure. From the photos I've seen, it doesn't seem like a terribly attractive man. And from, from you know, it doesn't seem like a real fun guy if he's not square dancing. So okay, look, I, what's going I, on I'm here? looking at some of his photos now. Look, I don't think he was necessarily like the most handsome dude ever. Mm -hmm. That said, he also had like a Hitler mustache. No, no, it's not a Hitler mustache. It's, a, it's, it's like an old... It's an old school mustache. I don't know what they're called, but it's like a little bit narrow and it's right under the nose. Yeah. And it doesn't go anyway. Like maybe that was like in style. So we're also looking back at the way he looks with yeah. the benefit of like modern fashion. Like no one should have a mustache like that. But, well, you know, was he like here. a particular? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Let's also. Well, yeah. Anyway, I. Um, but um, well, anyway, surprising. regardless of I, whether he's a good looking guy or not, like someone, uh, yeah. he looked exotic probably if you're, if you are, you know, if, if you're in Colorado or you're uh, like a, not to, not to, um, it was on a I ship. say a white woman on a ship, a on white a ship. woman on a ship. From Colorado, where, where did, what port did they leave I don't know, no, no, I'm just saying, well, no, he was in Colorado after the ship, but I'm just saying you can imagine how. You know, if if a if a tradition, you know, an American white woman sees this man, and they're not used to seeing people of color, yeah. And and Said Kutub was on the darker side. They might, I don't know, who am I to say they might find him like more exotic looking. Mm -hmm. But the point is, someone did find him sufficiently compelling to knock on his door. Well, or I, I assume that she must have seen him. <laughs> She yeah, must have she, seen him she before saw him because otherwise him, yeah. how would she know? Yeah, yeah. Unless right. she's just like knocking on random doors and hoping there's a guy who's awake and right. she just doesn't care who it is. I mean, I, that would be weird, I guess. Yeah. yeah. But um, anyway, I don't know where we're going with this. No, I was just, I, 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 I it, it changed my, my appreciation of the guy because I just, I felt like uh, I imagined always that, that um, 
maybe just wasn't very charismatic because he, you know, was there clearly brooding and all that, but probably not all that outgoing. But maybe that's just a, a misunderstanding of what he was like. And maybe he was actually yeah, he was definitely charming. a brooder, but with I, I don't I wouldn't say he was charming, but was did he have a charisma? Well, I mean, my sense from from, you know, obviously there's only so much you can glean from historical accounts, but he clearly had a hold on some people and people found him to be a very compelling individual. Is that charisma? Is that gravitas? I don't know. But um, I think that with all these ladies as well, that's what we know. Well, it didn't ultimately work because I don't, I mean, nothing happened that night and he was never married, but he didn't, he didn't want it to happen is what I'm saying. Anyway, I don't know where we're going. (laughs) Probably nowhere good. (laughs) On that note, do there. On that note, shoddy. All right. Okay. All right. Bye. Bye.